Romans chapter 13. In the first part of this epistle, the Apostle Paul teaches the principles of sin and salvation in Jesus Christ, the doctrine of justification by faith without works. Beginning in chapter 12, he begins to teach concerning the Christian life. And in that connection, he mentions the law of God in this chapter. So let's read Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil... Be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Read God's word that far. The Heidelberg Catechism that we consider this morning Lord's Day 34, the first part, the second part of Lord's Day 34 teaches about the first commandment. We're going to save that for next time, Lord willing. We only consider the first part of this Lord's Day. What is the law of God? God spake all these words, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and there follows the law that we read earlier, as it is quoted from Exodus 20. How are these commandments divided into two tables, the first of which teaches us how we must behave towards God, the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor? Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not the first time that the Catechism has drawn our attention to the law of God. As you may remember, in the first part of the Catechism, in Lord's Day 2, we have been asked what is the source of our knowledge of our misery. And the answer that we are to give is the law of God. The law of God teaches us about the nature of our misery. And then the Catechism asked, what does the law of God require? Lord's Day 2, still. The law of God requires that I love the Lord 
my God, with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and that I love my neighbor as myself. Then the Catechism asked us, are you able to keep all these things perfectly? And the answer we give is, by no means, for I am prone by nature to hate God, not to love him, to hate God and to hate, not to love, my neighbor. That's what I'm prone to by nature. So in the first part of the Catechism, the law is mentioned, and the law teaches us about our sins and our miseries, the true nature of our misery here on earth. The law of God gives to us the knowledge of our sin. And that's what the Apostle Paul also teaches in this same epistle to the Romans in chapter 3. The Apostle teaches there in verses 19 and 20 that we cannot be justified by the deeds of the law because the law gives us the knowledge of sin. That was the first part of the Catechism. Now we are in the third part of the Catechism. And now the Catechism brings the law to us again. What is the law of God? Lord's Day 34. The reason the Catechism asks that is because Lord's Day 33, the previous Lord's Day, has told us that we must do good works. Good works are those done according to the law of God. Well then, what is the law of God? And the reason we have been taught that we must do good works is that in the second part of the Catechism, we were taught that we have a great salvation. We have a great Savior. God has sent his Son into the world who has shed his precious blood for our sins on the cross. And it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are righteous, perfectly fully, completely righteous in Christ by faith without the works of the law. That was the second part of the catechism. So now in the third part, we are told, why must we still do good works? Because we must show our gratitude to God for that great salvation. And gratitude to God means that we do good works. Well, what are good works? Good works are those that proceed out of a true faith, There are no good works outside of faith. Only those that flow out of a true faith, only those which are in accordance with the law of God, and only those which aim at the glory of God. Those are truly good works. So there, the law of God. We must do good works to show our gratitude, and those good works are those that harmonize with the law of God. Then what is this law of God? That's our Lord's Day. Lord's Day 34. We now come to the law of God as those who know that we are sinners, who know that we are righteous in Jesus Christ alone and by faith alone. Now we come to the law with a new perspective, with new eyes, and we look at that law as the guide in the Christian life of thankfulness to God because we know that we must And we know that we want to show thankfulness to God, and we need to be taught how to do that. The Apostle Paul teaches this use of the law as well, as we saw in the chapter that we read. Having laid down in the first part of the epistle all of the doctrines of sin and salvation, now in the second part, he says, Therefore, you must live a godly, holy, Christian life in response to what God has done for you. And here in chapter 13, he makes reference to the law. He hasn't left the law behind. He comes back to the law and says, by loving one another, you have fulfilled the law. And he urges upon us the obedience to the law of thankfulness in this chapter when he says, we live in the last times It's time to awake out of sleep. It's time to wake up because our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The nighttime of this present age is far spent. Cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Walk honestly, not in rioting and drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in his law. 
So let's consider the law of God in the Christian life, the law of the Most High, our motivation to obey his law, and our love for his law. What is the law of God? The law of God is the expression of the will of the highest power in the universe for our lives as human beings on this earth. It is the expression of the living, breathing will of the ever-present, ever-holy, most high God for our lives as his human creatures. We read in Romans chapter 13, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. All power comes from God because God is the highest power in the universe. And the law of God is his law for us human beings. The law of God, therefore, is a marvelous, sublime, glorious, and majestic law. We're talking about the law of of the Most High God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To get a little sense of how we ought to feel as we stand before God and his law, imagine that you are standing before Caesar Augustus in his court in Rome at the height of his power when he reigned over the whole of the Mediterranean world. That was the higher power of which Paul speaks in this chapter, Caesar. Imagine yourself standing there in Caesar's court. There he sits on his beautiful golden throne, surrounded by symbols of his power, his authority, his dignity, surrounded by soldiers clothed in armor, carrying their swords and spears, wearing their helmets. And you know from those symbols about the hundreds of legions of soldiers that Caesar has at his command, by which he has conquered the nations and subjugated them to his will. And you stand there before Caesar, and he looks down upon you in all of his splendor and majesty with a slight smile upon his face, and you understand how small you are in the vast empire of Caesar. You would have no doubt in that moment that you are under him, that you are subject to his power and his dominion, and that you ought to obey the laws that come forth from Caesar. That when Caesar says, pay your taxes, render unto me what belongs to me, give me tribute, give me custom, give me honor, you would understand, I must do that because I'm subject to this great lord of the empire. But now we must remember that Caesar was just a speck of dust in comparison to the glorious, eternal majesty of the Most High God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who reigns in royal majesty and splendor over all of the galaxies of the universe, over all of the stars and the planets, over the vast earth here below with its oceans and mountains and forests and fields. This is the law of God. Not the law of man, the law of God. The law of him who reigns over all creatures, great and small. Caesar might look down upon you with penetrating gaze, and you might feel as if he looks right into your heart, but he can't. He can't look into your heart. The governments of the world can only look on the outward behavior. The government of our land can only regulate our outward actions and words. The government cannot regulate the activities, the thoughts, the desires, and intents of our hearts. If it could, it would be able to prevent murder before it even happens. But the government can't do that. God, however, sees the heart God looks within every single human creature and he sees what is happening in your heart and in my heart. The very motivations and thoughts and intents that are the fountains of our actions. The law of God, therefore, not only regulates our outward actions, but takes hold of our heart. And God says, that's mine too. And I'm going to tell you what to do in your heart 
and what not to do. God is not a king who is far, far away outside of our solar system and galaxy, far, far away at the outer reaches or even outside of this universe who takes no interest in our world or in what we do or in what we think. But God is very near and he takes a vital interest in the very thoughts and desires of every single man. And his law is God's expression of his will for us, for our lives, his will for our moral behavior. What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? God expresses that to us. He makes that known to us. That's his law. And God has expressed his will with permanent ink upon the hearts of every single man. That's the conscience. God has written upon the conscience of every single human being who has lived what he requires, what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. God has written it as permanently as he wrote on the two tables of stone with his finger. He has revealed to every man his will so that not a man can ultimately deny that God exists because every man knows, every man hears the voice of God in his heart. He hears God say, Thou shalt, thou shalt not. In the deepest recesses of his heart, every man hears that voice and knows God exists and I must obey him. But God also reveals his will on the pages of Scripture. Not only in his general revelation, but in his special revelation, God reveals his law. In the Scriptures, God tells us that there was a moment, a couple of thousand years after he created the heavens and the earth, there was a moment of time when God came down to this earth and made his presence known and felt on a mountain, around a mountain, in the peninsula of Sinai, east of Egypt. And there, in that place, and at that time, as we might expect, when the Most High King of Kings would come down to this little earth, it was a grand show of power and glory and majesty as that mountain began to shake and to burn and to flame, and there was thunder and lightning And the sound of a trumpet began to blast out from that mountain. And God himself began to speak. So that the people gathered around that mountain heard the voice of the Most High God in their very ears. And he spoke to them ten commandments. Ten. To symbolize that this was his complete and perfect will for us his human creatures, no more and no less than ten commandments. He spoke in their listening ears. He thunderously spoke that law personally and directly to every person standing there by that mountain because the way that law is expressed is in the singular. He doesn't merely say to the crowd out there, You shall not do this and you shall do that. But he says, you. He speaks to each one personally. Thou. That's the personal pronoun. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make no graven images of me or worship me through them. You must never take my name in vain on your lips. You must not kill You must not commit adultery. You must not steal or lie or covet. And that was his law. Almost the whole of that law was given in negative commandments. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. Negative. And the reason is not that the law of the Most High God is mostly a negative thing. But the explanation is that we, to whom the law is spoken, are already fallen sinners, totally corrupt and depraved and inclined to do all of the things we are not supposed to do. 
So he comes down and says to us, you shall not do those things. He wants to make known to us how much he despises and detests those things that he forbids. But he spoke two of the commands in a positive manner. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and honor your father and your mother. But although most of the law God spoke to them in negative terms, we know from the rest of Scripture that the law of God is inherently positive. The heart of the law, the summary, the substance of the law is a positive command, and that command is, love me. Love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And that's what he says to us personally. And love your neighbor as yourself. God spoke that word from that mountain in the midst of fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and earthquake. But shortly after he spoke that law, he wrote it down with his own holy and divine finger on two tables of stone, that is, two tablets of stone. Stone to symbolize that this law was a permanent thing. It was not a temporary thing. It was not a culture-specific thing, a nation-specific thing. It was a permanent, enduring, absolute law for all human beings. And he wrote it with his own finger so that we would know this is indeed not the law of Moses, but the law of God on two tables. The one table the Catechism teaches us to show us how we are to behave in relationship to God, and the second table to show us how we are to behave in relationship to our neighbor, to each other. Now, why did God speak and write down his law and give it to Israel? God did not do that in order to give to Israel a way of becoming righteous, a way of justification, a way by means of the obedience to that law to merit salvation. The Apostle Paul teaches clearly in Romans 3 that by the deeds of the law no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This law, what does it teach you when you hear that law, when you hear it come to you, and you hear it explained and expounded, not only in its external commands, but in its internal commands? Not merely as a law for your outward behavior, but one that grasps hold of your heart and says, obey me there, don't do these things and do these things. What does that law teach us? That law teaches us, I'm a sinner. I do those things. I break those commands. I fall grievously short. That law, when it is preached to us, doesn't merely teach us that we are sinners in some general sense of the word, but it teaches us that we are grievous sinners. Miserable, wretched, terrible sinners. Because the law is ten commandments. And the law touches the heart. So the law exposes the manifold ways that we rebel against God and disobey God and show hatred toward our neighbor. It shows that we fall terribly short of the glory of God in the whole of our life. God did not give the law then as a way to work our way up to glory and to heaven as a way of righteousness for us, as a way of justification. But the law... When it comes to us, the law says, don't look at me for righteousness. Oh yes, if you obey me perfectly, then you are righteous. But don't look at me for righteousness. God did not express me to you to show you that you are righteous or can be righteous by keeping me. But the law says, look away from me. Don't look at me. If you look at me, all I'm going to do is point my finger at you and I'm going to condemn you and accuse you and remind you that you are 
a sinner. Don't look at me. For righteousness. For righteousness. But turn to the gospel for that. Because the gospel comes and declares to us, you have no righteousness in yourself, but God supplies for you the righteousness that you need in his son, Jesus Christ. Look to Christ for your righteousness. The law then, as Paul writes elsewhere, is a schoolmaster, a teacher that brings us to Christ. Because the law points us away from ourselves and therefore points us to the gospel, which declares Christ to us so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. But God now has another purpose for his law. That same schoolmaster that brings us to Christ shows us how we are to live in thankfulness to God for Christ. So that brings us to the motivation that we have to obey his law. What is our motivation? Do we have a motivation as Christians to strive and to endeavor with all that in us lies to keep this law. Even though it condemned us and accused us of being great sinners, we have in us a powerful motivation to strive and to endeavor to keep it until the day that we die. And that motivation is Christ. That's the motivation. Christ. Christ, who is freely and mercifully and graciously given to us, as our righteousness, we unworthy, undeserving sinners. That's our motivation, to strive to keep the law. The law shows us how to live in thankfulness to God for Christ. That was true already in the Old Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament first as we examine what is our motivation. And to see that throughout the whole of the scriptures, our motivation to keep the law is never to merit, to obtain, or to gain, or to get something from God, but always thankfulness to God for what we have received. In the very beginning of time, God created Adam and Eve in his own image and in his own likeness, already perfectly righteous and holy. He gave them life with him in a beautiful garden paradise on earth. Think of all of the riches and the treasures and the pleasures that God bestowed upon them freely. They had done nothing to earn or to obtain the creation of themselves, their existence, their life in the covenant with God in a beautiful garden of Eden. And it was only after he created them, after he gave them life, after he blessed them richly and freely, that God then came with his commandment and said, And I give you this commandment. You may freely eat of all the trees of the garden, but do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obey me. And God's purpose with that law was not that Adam and Eve would obey this law in order then to obtain life in the garden with God. But their motivation to keep that law was God has already given us life in the garden, in his covenant. He's already richly blessed us and created us. It was thankfulness to God for all that he had already done for them. Later, God spoke his promises to Abraham. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees into a strange and foreign land where he would live as a pilgrim and stranger throughout his life. And he spoke promises of encouragement and comfort to Abraham. Abraham. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give to your seed after you this whole land of Canaan that flows with milk and honey and I'm going to give to you and Sarah a son in your old age. I'm going to give you a child, Abraham. From your own bowels, I'm going to do the impossible thing, Abraham, what you could not do with Sarah because you are barren and you are old. I'm going to give you son. And look up, Abraham, at the stars of the heaven. Can you count them? That's how many your seed will be. And we are told Abraham believed in the Lord, 
and he counted it to him for righteousness. So God gave gracious promises to Abraham, and God justified Abraham by faith in those promises because the promise of the child was the promise of Christ, and the faith of Abraham in that promise was faith in Christ. He was richly blessed, but God had not yet given his law. Not yet. In fact, God didn't give his law to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob or to the twelve tribes or throughout the entire lifetime of the patriarchs. He blessed them richly, gave them his covenant, gave them his promises, gave them free righteousness by faith in the coming Messiah, but didn't give his law. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul calls attention to that in Galatians 3. 400 some years later, God gave his law to Moses at Mount Sinai. After he had blessed his people, the patriarchs, and after he had richly blessed Israel, his people. After, not before, after. After he had brought forth Israel by a mighty hand and a stretched out arm from the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage, where Israel languished in slavery and cruel, hard bondage under the tyranny of Pharaoh, where they labored under the hot sun, a picture of the slavery and the toilsomeness of sin in our slavery to Satan. But God came remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, raising up Moses. And through the precious shed blood of the Passover lambs, smeared on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses of the children of Israel. He redeemed them from the death of their firstborn sons at the hand of the destroyer. He redeemed them through the atoning blood that pointed forward. And through the outstretched rod of Moses, God divided the sea, the waters, so that they became two Walls on the right hand and on the left, and brought his people through the midst of the sea on dry ground to the other side of the sea. And as Pharaoh chased after them with his chariots and his horsemen into the midst of the sea, Moses stretched out his arm again over the sea. And the waters crashed down upon Pharaoh and utterly drowned and destroyed him and all of his hosts. Can you imagine the thrill of joy? and thanksgiving that filled the hearts of the children of Israel as they stood on the other shore of the sea and looked out and saw the completion of their redemption. We've been rescued. We've been set free. We've been redeemed from the cruel slavery of Pharaoh. It's finished. It's complete. We've been saved. Only then, Only then did God bring them to Mount Sinai and speak his law. What was their motivation to keep that law? The great salvation that God had done for them. The preface of the law of God is our constant reminder of our motivation. The law begins with the gospel. I am the Lord your God, who hath brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's who I am. That's who you are. That's what I've done for you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I did that. You didn't do that. I did that. I brought you out. I saved you. The precious blood of the Passover lambs through your baptism, through the midst of the Red Sea. I've taken you to myself to be my peculiar people, my peculiar treasure. I love you. I love you. Now, keep my commandments. The motivation is gratitude. God did not say to them in the beginning of the Ten Commandments, if you want to be my children, you have to fulfill this condition. You have to keep these commandments perfectly. Or you even have to keep these commandments imperfectly. He didn't say that. He said, I am the Lord your God. I did save you. Now, 
Do not have other gods before me. Do not worship me in your own way. Do not blaspheme my name. Remember my Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't kill him. Protect your neighbor's possessions. Don't steal from him. Be faithful in your marriage. Don't commit adultery. Tell the truth in love. Don't lie. Be content with what you have. Don't covet. And then they set forth on their march through the wilderness. And after marching and traveling through that waste, howling wilderness, at last they came to the Jordan River, and there was the promised land. And Moses preached to them the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy has as one of its great themes that God, through Moses, reminds his people of all that he has done for them. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and following, we read, The Lord thy God hath chosen thee, election. He hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth, because the Lord loved you. That's why he chose you, because he loved you. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. That's why. Because the Lord chose you. He loved you. He saved you. He is your God. You are in his covenant. Obey his commandments. That's your gratitude. But the rest of the history of the people of God in the Old Testament is one great, dreary monument to the truth that God's people cannot keep that law. The rest of the history of the Israelites is a history of apostasy, of idolatry, of whoring after other gods, captivity. Nevertheless, also in the Old Testament, we find stories and examples of saints whom God sanctified and to whom God gave a love for his law and to whom God gave obedience to that law so that they abounded in works of thankfulness to God as their God. We find that too. But the prevailing testimony of the Old Testament is to show us that when the people of God were under the testament of the law, the dispensation of the law, that was to teach us that we cannot keep that law of ourselves. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law also shows us how ungrateful we are. And it points us to Christ. Christ is the motivation to keep the law. The whole Old Testament flows to Christ. And now here appears on the pages of the Scripture the Messiah, the Son of God, the real Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who shed his own precious blood and smeared it on that cross for my sins. yours. Smeared his blood all over that cross as the children of Israel smeared it over their doorposts. He smeared it there. He shed it there to pay for my sins and yours. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He delivered us from the spiritual bondage of sin, the slavery to Satan. He broke the chains of sin, the power of guilt and of the devil through his precious blood and through his perfect obedience and righteousness. And he rose from the dead as the mighty conqueror over sin and death, as our Lord and righteousness. And now, pouring out his Holy Spirit, he baptizes us through the Red Sea. He brings us out of the land of Egypt, out of that house of bondage. He breaks us 
free from the law as a yoke of bondage that curses us and accuses us and condemns us. And he consecrates us to a new and godly life in which sin no longer has dominion over us. We're like now the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, redeemed from Egypt, justified, regenerated, sanctified, marching, and the best is yet to come. There's the promised land over there. That land promised to us flowing with milk and honey where we will enjoy everlasting rest in body and soul for all eternity. When Jesus comes to take us to create a new heavens and a new earth, there's the promised land just over there, just over Jordan. But now we're marching through the wilderness and God gives us his law. Keep my commandments and my statutes and my judgments. That is your reasonable service. That is the way of thankfulness to God for all that he has done. That's what the Apostle Paul very explicitly teaches in his epistles. Galatians, Romans, and the others. Romans that we read from, as we saw already in the first part, the Son of God slain for sinners, our righteousness, our justification, fully and completely in him. The second part, I beseech you, brethren, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Walk in God's law. Keep God's commandments. In chapter 13 that we read, he says, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. There's the heart of the law. Positive. The life of gratitude is not just abstaining from what is forbidden. The life of gratitude is walking in love. Love for God. Love for each other. He that loveth hath fulfilled the law. For this, Paul says, and there he lists some of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery or kill or steal or bear false witness or covet. Or if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love means that you do good to your neighbor. For God's sake, therefore the love is the fulfilling of the law. The preface of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament could be put this way. I am the Lord your God in Jesus Christ who has brought you out of the bondage of your sin, who has given you hope that you will escape from the wrath to come, who gives you hope that you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. I am the Lord your God who have established my covenant with you. You are my friend. You are my child. Now keep my commandments. And therefore, as Christians, we love the law of our God. We love it. We love that law. We don't despise it. We don't hate it. We don't think of the law as something evil, as something distasteful. We don't think of the law merely in its cursing, condemning function. Oh, we are surely very glad and joyful that we have been set free from that yoke of bondage, from the law as a yoke of bondage, from the law as that which must be kept perfectly in order to be righteous. We're so glad. We're so relieved. We're so filled with joy and peace and comfort that we don't have to keep this law in order to be justified. We are, aren't we? The apostle says, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath set you free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to the law 
and try to keep that in order to be righteous. Don't do that. Don't be entangled. Then it becomes a yoke. Then it becomes a burden and a bondage. And it will kill you. Don't do that. That's what the Pharisees did, isn't it? That's what they were trying to do. And they failed. Because it's impossible. We read in our family devotions this past week from Matthew 23, where the Lord Jesus declares several woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And one of them, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe of your mint and your anise and your cumin, your herbs and your spices. You carefully, scrupulously harvest little little leaves and flowers and herbs from your garden, and you bring your little basket of your little tenth of herb plants to church, and you offer them to God, but you neglect the weightier matters the law and justice and mercy. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And the Lord teaches us there that when we try to be righteous by keeping the law, we're going to become so focused upon the details, the mint and the basil and the thyme and the sage and the tithing of the little things that we're going to start neglecting the big things. We can't keep the law perfectly. Then we start to major in minors or minor in majors. Legalism doesn't work. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath set you free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Only use not liberty as an occasion for the flesh. And that's what the apostle says in that same chapter, Galatians 5. He says it in our chapter 2. Let us walk honestly, verse 13. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That's the danger, isn't it? The danger is that we believers, when we hear that we don't have to keep the law to be justified, we become glad, but that gladness springs from our flesh Because our flesh now sees an opportunity to exploit the gospel and to use it for our own sinful, selfish desires. How horrible is antinomianism? Not only the doctrine of antinomianism, but the practice of antinomianism into which all of us can fall and do fall and are prone. Doctrinally, we might have it right. I have to keep the law, I know that. But then in our lives, when we are starting to behave as if it's not that important, we don't have to strive and endeavor to keep that law, and we're living like an antinomian again. We're making occasion for the flesh. Don't do that. How horrible that is. Legalism, antinomianism, both horrible. But the child of God, who looks by faith up at his precious Savior hanging on the cross, smearing his blood to pay for my sins. And with a lively faith, focuses on, fastens upon Christ Jesus the Lord. He cries out there at the cross with thankful joy, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Child of God, Sings that, oh, how love I thy law. Oh, how love I thy law. Because the child of God wants to keep the law that he knows he must keep. He wants to keep it. He wants to know how to please his God and Savior. He wants to live according to the will of the Most High God, his Savior. He wants to grow in the Christian life. He wants to increase and to abound more and more in good works. The child of God wants that. The child of God, therefore, is not at all against the preaching of the law with that purpose. When the child of God hears the preaching of Christ and him crucified, he then wants to hear also the preaching of the law. Tell me, preacher, tell me, how do I live in response to that precious blood 
that was shed for me, that great love for me. Urge me, preacher. Urge me to press forward in the mark, to the mark. Urge me to endeavor in the Christian life. Urge me, challenge me, exhort me, beseech me to obey the law of God more faithfully. Set before me holiness and godliness as that to which I aim in my life. That's the endeavor that now we embark on in Lord's Day 34. Not that we leave behind the first use of the law. As we go through the commandments, we're going to find in each commandment, there's my sin again. There's my sin. Oh, how love I the gospel. And then, oh, how love I that law. That law that condemns me and curses me also shows me what to do in response for that great salvation. So may God use the preaching of his law in these coming weeks to bring us to Christ, to set us again on the path of Christian life of gratitude. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we give thee thanks for thy gospel and law, these precious gifts that thou dost Send to us through the scriptures, through the preaching. We pray that thou wilt impress upon us the gospel of our salvation through the precious blood, that we might be stirred up in our hearts to a love of the law, to a desire to grow in the works of the law in gratitude. 